This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We continue our coverage of Russia's war in Ukraine as the reality of the carnage and destruction sinks in, millions flee, but resistance grows. Simon Pirani, who blogs at peoplenature.org, is a longtime labor activist, Russia-Ukraine historian, and specialist on gas and oil. He joins us for the hour to analyze the political and economic motives for the war, the ominous signs in terms of war conduct from previous Russian wars in Chechnya, Syria, and the Donbass in 2014. And we'll also look at the Ukrainian resistance and the anti-war resistance in Russia. We get Simon's take on this and so much more when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Simon Pirani back with us. We're going to spend the hour with him, continuing our coverage of Putin's war on Ukraine. The shock of the war's actuality is now shifted to the shock of its carnage and brutality. There's no other way to describe it except as a criminal human tragedy that suddenly and radically escalates danger even as the IPCC issued its devastating report of the climate emergency, giving the world more or less eight years to cut fossil fuel emissions in half. So we are, as we record this interview on day 17 of the war, Russian forces have intensified their campaign of devastation aimed at cities and towns across Ukraine. And as I mentioned, the utter brutality has only prompted more resistance and protests in Ukraine and in Russia, too, despite draconian repressive measures. It's important to note that Russia is not winning militarily and has not been able to quickly take over the country by air, land or sea. So Russia has deployed missiles, rockets and bombs to destroy apartment buildings, schools, factories, hospitals, increasing civilian carnage and suffering and leading to, at this point, more or less two and a half million people fleeing the country. We're going to get Simon Pirani's take. And Simon is an honorary professor at the University of Durham. He's the author of several books, and we've talked about them right here. The most recent one is called Burning Up, A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption. But he also wrote Change in Putin's Russia, Power, Money, and People. And before that, The Russian Revolution in Retreat from 1920 to 24, and that's Soviet workers and the new communist elite. And Simon has also written widely on natural gas markets in the former Soviet Union, including as co-editor and contributor to the Russian gas matrix, How Markets Are Driving Change. That came out in 2014. Simon is also a longtime activist in the labor movement and He blogs at peoplenature.org, all one word, people nature. That's the go-to place for vital information on Russia, East Europe, the left and resistance, climate, and so much more. So that is peoplenature.org. Simon Pirani, welcome back to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me, Susie. Nice to see you. Always nice. And of course, the conditions are absolutely awful. But I want to begin with a question that everybody's asking and needs to be explored probably as many times as everybody's asking it. And that is why, despite the very strong intelligence reports that said that Putin was going to go to war in Ukraine, and despite that, 
overwhelmingly, the experts, ourselves included, thought that this was a bluff, that something would happen, that Putin would back down and we would not actually get to the state we're in. So I'm going to ask you in the beginning, and we may come back to it in other ways, but why why did we think he wouldn't go to war? Why were we all blindsided, essentially, is the question. Well, thanks, Susie. Yeah, I think that to understand the Russian motivation and just to tell your listeners how much I know, I, like you and like many, many others who think they know what's going on, including in in Russia, did not think there would be this full-scale invasion. I did think that there would be some military activity in the east around the so-called People's Republics in Donetsk and Lugansk. And in fact, one of the ironic things in the middle of this horrible catastrophe that's unfolding is that that's about the one place where there seems to have been very little military activity. In other words, the whole, if one was watching Russian television, one would be told that this was a means of defending these republics from attack. And in fact, all the military activity has been elsewhere, both in the southeast of Ukraine, predominantly against the populations of Russian-speaking cities, and, as you mentioned, a lot of activity going towards Kiev. So I think the reason that we all found it so difficult to gauge what was going on is because of a fault line in the Kremlin's approach, a fault line in its policies, where on the one hand, it has to manage capitalism. That's what capitalist governments do and provide conditions for the effective working of the economy. And on the other hand, there's a political or there's a series of political elements in its approach. And this is the second time, I'd say the first time was 2014, when the Kremlin has very clearly sacrificed a lot economically in order to pursue those political aims. Now. We will talk about whether that was a good calculation or a wise calculation, but the point is, by looking at it that way, we can break down what the drivers are. Because, so in 2014, it was very clear that should Russia annex Crimea, as it did, and should it give support to these armed formations that established the so-called republics, with a lot of military support from Russia, it was very clear that there was going to have to be some pushback from the Western powers and that that would very likely come in the form of economic sanctions. I mean, I think they must have understood that absolutely clearly in the Kremlin. Nevertheless, and prepared for it. And prepared for it. And nevertheless, they went ahead. The advantage they got from that was not in the economic field because they, I mean, the sanctions were much more precise and limited at that time. The sanctions on certain members of the Russian government, certain business arrangements, and sanctions primarily on the Russian financial system. But for that price, what they got in return was a concession or a gift to the nationalist strain within the elite and the state. I remember talking with a Russian colleague about a year after. 2014, and we were saying, well, I was saying, well, what was the point? What on earth was driving this? And that person said Putin could not afford, but despite his quite powerful individual position in the leadership setup, he could not afford to be the guy who had not taken Crimea when the opportunity 
presented itself and made trouble for Ukraine in the way that the uh, republics became trouble when the opportunity presented itself. So that was one. Second was, if we think back to that time, the economic boom, which dominated the first decade of, of Putin's rule, the whole of the 2000 to 2010, the oil prices were going up, the money was rolling in, and even ordinary Russians were benefiting in the sense that all the terrible privations they'd had in terms of living standards in the 1990s were reversed and more than reversed. So it was really boom time. The Russian economy took a blow from the 0809 financial crisis, but that took time to work its way through because the oil prices, if you remember, stayed mm. high for a couple of years after that. And by the time we get to 2014, Russians are really thinking, well, hang on, we thought this guy Putin was bringing us kind of everlastingly good living standards and or at least improving living standards. And that was wearing off. And 2014 gave a big boost in the popularity of the Kremlin because of nationalism, because of the, the thought that Russia had taken a beating from the Western powers during the 1990s and the sort of resentment that many ordinary Russians felt about that. I think the third political aim in 2014 was the fear in the Russian elite of what happened in Ukraine. We hear quite a lot of nonsense, to be honest, in the West. About You're talking about the Maidan revolution? The Maidan revolution. So we hear a lot of nonsense in the West about how this was a coup. And if ever there was an event which was not a coup, this was clearly it. I mean, half the mm. population of Kiev was on the street. And don't forget, it's very cold at that time of year in Kiev. So not only they're on the street, they were on the street at like minus 15 overnight. And they were there for a couple of weeks. Now, I don't want to dress that event up or say it was kind of wonderful or that the politics of it were clear. They, they were not at all clear. Half the population of Kiev contains the entire array of politics from extreme right to radical socialists of the sort that you and I would see as friends and comrades. But the fact is the government was overthrown. And that scared the Kremlin. Ukraine is to Russia in many respects what Ireland is to Britain. It's the oldest colony and it's close. And I think that was one of the deciding factors. Now, that's all 2014. Now, if we roll forward to now, we've had the persistent war in the east of Ukraine. So this is not a war that started. I mean, it's, it's been magnified horribly in the last three weeks, but it started in 2014. And before the invasion last month had claimed 14,000 lives, including 4,000 civilian lives. So this war has been going on. Uh, Ukraine has not backed off. It, it's not acted in the way that uh, the Kremlin must have hoped. And all those other factors are again redoubled. I mean, we've had the revolt in Kazakhstan before that, and probably more relevant to this, we had the huge revolt in Belarus in 2020. Mm -hmm. And this is all what, from the Russian nationalist point of view, is this greater Russia. So all those factors, I think, then came into play again. And I think the other thing is there's a huge miscalculation. I think Putin must have believed some of his own propaganda and some of his own ideology about what would happen to the invasion. It's been bogged down, as we know, and the sort of very quick victory uh, never came about. And that's well, I want to go into further problems. Yeah, this is perfect, Simon Prani. And I want to go into the calculation and miscalculation just a little bit more. And I think you've done a very good job at the other side of it, of course, is that many presume that 
Putin thought that it would be more of a cakewalk, that he would be able to go in and in 96 hours, you know, subdue Ukraine somehow. So his calculation seems to have been that there wouldn't have been the kind of cost that we're seeing now or that there wouldn't have been the kind of resistance that we're seeing now. And of course, that means that, you know, it's shifted and it looks like and we'll go into this that instead of being a cakewalk, he's now shifting his strategy to one where he'll just try to destroy the population. So this, to go to your point, Simon, he completely miscalculated, at least at that point. And and I think it's worth mentioning, and I'd like your comments on it, that everything he tried to do, he's had the reverse effect. So he wanted to weaken NATO, and instead he strengthened it. He wanted to weaken Europe. He strengthened it. Perhaps he wanted to create a further wedge in Ukraine, but now he's united Ukraine. And whereas Zelensky was not that popular, he he won by a landslide, but he wasn't enjoying the kind of popularity he is now. He's emerged as a genuine leader. And I heard last night on television that he has 91% support at this point. So it's skyrocketed. So given those miscalculations, I think it's worth going into what you think Putin's strategy is now? Well, I don't know, Susie, and I don't think it helps for people like me to speculate. I prefer to talk about the Kremlin. I think there's an awful lot of stuff about Putin as an individual and the fact he looks like he's on steroids and maybe he's not well and maybe he's really gone around the bend (laughs) or whatever. And, you know, I'm not going to speculate about that either because it's all of it, which all of it might be true. (laughs) It might be. But on the other hand, you're right. And I should just let the listeners know, too, that on Saturday's Financial Times, there's a very good, bigger portrait of his inner circle. But go ahead. Well, there is. And there's also, if you get as far as the Financial Times website, I'd say look at the extraordinary article they published today about the military problems that the Russian army has run into and what the causes of those are and the lack of preparation and the corruption in supply to the army and the fact that's why they haven't got tires on these vehicles. I mean, I'm not anything of a a military analyst, but it does seem to have been a, a massive miscalculation. I'm not sure about NATO being that united. I think that there are those in the Western powers, and they're still there, who before the invasion were angling for a deal between themselves and Putin, which would have effectively been imposed on Ukraine. I mean, I think there's a question if they'd sold that deal to the Ukrainian government as to whether any government could have sold it to Ukrainian people. And so, I mean, you're right, certainly in the temporary sense, there's a kind of show of unity from the Western powers. But I think they've all got different ideas as to how this might end. But I mean, the biggest thing and the thing I know a little bit about is the reaction of the Ukrainian population And uh, this has got me thinking, Susie, that any war is a combination of a war between states and a people's war. If we think about any war, whether it was the Vietnam War, the Second World War, there's always both of these elements, not always, but in in a lot of wars, there's both of these elements. And for sure, the war unfolding now, just like the other wars that Russia has fought in this century the uh, war in Chechnya, the war they waged in support of Bashar al-Assad in Syria, uh, there are these two elements. And it's very striking to see these crowds of 
Ukrainians, even in the cities that have now been occupied. So Kherson, uh, Melitopol, where they kidnapped the mayor in an absolutely aggressive and terroristic fashion. But the reaction to that was then a big demonstration by people with Ukrainian flags and so on. So I don't know whether Putin really believed his army was going to be welcomed as kind of liberators. And this is certainly what he said. But if he did believe that, clearly that's not the case and clearly, even in the Russian speaking, I mean, to me, as somebody who's traveled to Ukraine many times, it's really striking to see these horrendous pictures on television. They would be horrendous, whoever was under these bombs, of course. But I mean, for them to be bombing in the name of, you know, defending Russian speaking Ukrainians, to be bombing Kharkiv and Berdyansk. And Mariupol, too. 30% Russian. All of these places is just extraordinary. So I think that is something that. Putin didn't gamble on. The other side of what you might call that people's war is there's a lot of people, including friends I know, who've gone and signed up to these volunteer detachments. So it's gone not only to demonstrating and non-violent activity, which has caused a lot of demoralization in the Russian army. I think we should say that. We don't know. Of course, there's all sorts of disinformation flying about. But I think even if you factor that in, there's obviously a huge Uh, discontent and demoralization in the Russian army as a result of facing these crowds of people who, you know, in many cases are speaking to them in Russian. But there's this volunteer element as well. Now, let's not kid ourselves. A lot of fascists from a lot of European countries will be going and are going or have been, have already gone and joined those detachments. And of course, there's the Azov Battalion, which is dominated by the Ukrainian fascists, which is working very closely with the army. But again, if we're serious, we shouldn't have a one-sided picture. This is a big popular war, if you like. Certainly that fascist element is there. Now, what scares me is that this could unfold more and more as events unfolded in Syria, where essentially a popular uprising, which was entirely nonviolent and entirely so using the weapons, in quotation marks, that the workers' movement uses, that civil society uses. So the weapons of demonstrating, the weapons of community organisation, the weapons of women organising in a way that they don't do in, quote, normal times and so on. All these weapons that we have that are our strengths were gradually and remorselessly undermined and weakened as the number of guns and even more violent weapons on all sides rows and rows and rows. That's the tragedy that was inflicted on the Syrian revolution. Now, the danger here is that we'll get something similar in in Ukraine. I was going to ask about that. So maybe we'll talk about that right now, but I want to go back to the kind of resistance we're seeing, not just in Ukraine, but also in Russia. But first, let's go back to this on the conduct of the war and what's happening in the ground, you know, as you're implying, because we're seeing very heavy casualties and lots of destruction, millions fleeing. And Mariupol, you know, is a terrible sign of what could be in store. And you mentioned Syria. Of course, there's Chechnya as well. And thinking Grozny, you know, that and that was Putin who decided to level the city. And there were lots of Russians in Grozny. All of the old Soviet Union and Russian Empire has Russian citizens in all of these places, and they were Russian-speaking as well. So if it's this kind of, you know, to go back to the motive question about some kind of ethno-nationalist sentiment, or at least the rhetoric used, 
it starts to make little sense when you see that who they're raining destruction on. And so I guess that means that it's a question of not brooking any resistance to this greater vision of restoring a greater Russia or whatever we think that it is. And you started to talk about Kremlin versus just Putin and their interests. So we should go back there. But I, you mentioned the approach that was adopted in Syria, and I just mentioned in Chechnya. So what is in store as they move into a new stage? And is it because of the factors that you've mentioned about troop morale, also that Ukrainian level of resistance in Ukraine, but also that it appears that Putin has now deployed all the troops that he has. And so they're getting Syrian and Chechen recruits and maybe others that you are hinting at. I don't know. So is that what you're seeing? Again, Susie, I think it's not helpful to speculate or guess. And that's really all I would be doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, danger is there. Well, I suppose the only thing that is perhaps relevant that uh, your listeners might not know about is that in uh, Kherson, they proposed the Russian authorities, and I'm not clear which authorities, started calling the members of the local regional government and saying that they wanted to organise a referendum on setting up a Kherson People's Republic, which would go with the Donetsk and Lugansk republics. And I've just seen some news earlier on saying that the 40-odd members of this regional government held a meeting and rejected this proposal and said that as far as they were concerned, Kherson was part of Ukraine. And so we don't know what the action to that will be. I think, I mean, I think, the, you know, the dynamics in these areas that have been occupied by Russia are very, very, very scary. I suppose the thing we can look back at for some indications of what might be in store is the two republics in Donetsk and Lugansk. So a long story, but those two regions were split down the middle. So the eastern part of both of the regions comprise the republics. The western part has always, since 2014, remained under Ukrainian government control out of a total pre-2014 population of 6.6 million, half have left, 3.3 million. And they were mainly internally displaced people in Ukraine. Many went to Russia. The economy has been absolutely trashed. It was going back through the decades, the sort of industrial heartland in many ways of Ukraine, with particularly coal production and steel production. Most of that capacity has just gone metals factories, other kind of food processing and other such factories. I mean, the only figure I've seen, which it's worked out by the economist uh, Vlad Mufnenka, is 61% reduction in the economy during those eight years. And these republics, in quotes, are ruled by these armed militia. They've destroyed the right of free speech, the right of free assembly. Uh, They've institutionalised torture. There's an NGO, a non-governmental organisation, which I very much admire, the Eastern Human Rights Group, which was established by people who came out of the trade union movement. And it was based just in the Ukrainian-controlled part of Donetsk. They've organised a lot of research about the way that the republics are ruled, the fact that you basically have a a ban on political parties, uh, the fact that you have a ban on independent trade union activity, 
and the fact most scary, because, I mean, those things, as we know, in, in Russia or Kazakhstan don't necessarily put people off doing things. But when you have a, a law enforcement system, which is completely arbitrary, where there's no, you know, if you disappear into jail in those republics, there's no way a lawyer is going to be able to go to a judge and find out where you are. So you've got a system of intimidation reminiscent perhaps of some of the dictatorships in Latin America in the 1960s and 70s. So those are the republics which Putin recognized on the basis of a motion brought to the Russian parliament by the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, let's not forget. And that was the recognition that really kicked everything off. And and within three days came the invasion. Can I just add to that, that there was a And I've forgotten the guy's name, unfortunately, a researcher from Virginia Tech who was doing polling in the region in the summer of 2021. So before all of this happened, and then, you know, this is prior to the Donetsk or the Donbass region being recognized by Russia, but they asked the question and the majority said they don't want to be independent that they think their own leaders are corrupt. They think Ukrainian leaders are corrupt and that the majority of the ones that he polled said that they just want to be part of Russia. There's no doubt, of course, because you've got that uh, Russian-speaking population, that opinions were divided pre-2014. Those areas were a strong base of support for the Party of Regions, which was the party that supported President Yanukovych, who was overthrown. And I think when he was overthrown, I think there were you know, even ordinary people in those areas who were very worried about what the future held. I think there were politicians in Kiev who handled that badly. I think there were Ukrainian nationalists who sought to inflame differences and conflicts within the population on the basis of that. However, we've got to be clear, because, again, this is some of the nonsense that you hear, that there was no sort of progressive workers uprising in those areas which gave rise to those republics. That's just not what happened. Here in the UK, Susie, I mean, it's a very crude analogy and very limited, but, you know, for people to get an orientation, I say think Ireland, that Ukraine is in some ways, I mentioned before, analogous to Ireland, because Ukraine is Russia's oldest colony. Think the UK, as in Russia, an old imperialist power now in decline and thrashing around, trying to see what its place in the world is going to be, and think you know, the Protestant Scots who were migrant labourers who came from Scotland in the 17th and 18th century to the northern part of Ireland and were used, used throughout their history politically over a very, very long period, using the, the sort of orange ideology and the loyalist ideology and the provision of jobs in Ireland, which were much better paid and were in a way privileged to keep the working class split. So, It's a limited analogy because obviously the history was different. We went through the Soviet period and so on. But those Russian speakers who came down in the late 19th century with the industrialization of Donbass and who were successfully integrated into the Ukrainian Soviet Republic in many ways. I mean, successfully is perhaps putting it too strongly, but, you know, there was a certain unity created at that time and and in the post-Soviet period. Now, that's been wrecked, and I would say that the cause and effect relationship is very much that it was the intervention of the extreme right based in Russia, supported by the Russian state in the armed groups, 
that's where the initiative was taken. That's where the driving force was to set up those republics. And I think they do give us an indication of if, I mean, one possible outcome of the situation we're now in is that we'll end up with more parts of Ukraine under control of Russian-supported authorities or Russia itself. And there's very little to recommend to working people anywhere in Ukraine from the experience of the republics that they should be in that state. I'm so glad you gave all that background. And I think the Irish analogy is a very good one, even if it doesn't go all of the way. But then let's go to the kind of resistance, because clearly the rhetoric is changing, too, whereas it's only been 17 days so far. And everybody has seen it as Putin's war, as you like to say, the Kremlin's war. And we saw these impressive demonstrations throughout Russia and one after another group's declarations that they're opposed to this and they stand with Ukrainians. And you've published on your blog statements from leftists who have called for solidarity with Ukrainians fighting. But now we're seeing this increasingly more ugly rhetoric, I think, on both sides. So and I want to take it to the question of how Putin is managing the media and the message. But what we're seeing, I I noticed in the kinds of interviews we see in our newscasts, is that Ukrainians are now saying they don't just hate Putin, but they hate Russia and they hate Russians. That's understandable given the history, but that's a change and it doesn't bode well. And even if what you say should come to pass, that somehow Putin is, let's assume that he gets away with this and is able to create these various statelets. More than one person has said it, and I like the analogy, then what? He swallowed a porcupine. And not only that, at gigantic economic cost. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that, and then we can talk about the efforts that Putin has gone to to manage the message. Yeah, I think that whatever happens, the Russian, that in the long term, the Putin setup is finished. And it's finished. And this war will be one of the main causes, if not the main cause of it finishing. I don't take any pleasure out of that because I think the process as we go down that road could be incredibly painful, both for obviously people in Ukraine who are under this horrendous military attack, but also people in Russia. I don't know if you you, were going to go on and talk about the Western sanctions on Russia, Susie, we could do. Yeah, I do. I think it might be a good place to talk about it and just say that Just one thing before we do that, you know, that Putin has cracked down and that he's calling it a special military operation. They've passed a law on fake news with terrible consequences should, you know, independent media in any place contradict it. Dissent is being met with draconian measures. People are fleeing Russia. So there's a brain drain there, too. So go on. Well, no, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There was a huge round of protest immediately after the invasion, far greater than anything I would have expected. Then in the first few days of March, we got these new laws imposed, which basically, I think if you call for sanctions or for the withdrawal of the army, it's 10 years. And if you distribute what the authorities consider to be false information about the war, it's 15 years. I think I've got that right. So, I mean, I've seen a lot of uh, repressive legislation and a lot of intimidation of workers' movements and civil society during the many years I've visited Russia, but I really thought that was a turning point. And I can tell you, Susie, I reacted by sending messages to to some very close friends saying, 
guys, I don't know how you're reacting to this, but we're here in London. If you need to flee the country, don't hesitate to ask for our support. And you're right that many thousands of Russian, not even necessarily socialists, but liberals, activists of different kinds have fled. And I do think this is a turning point. That anti-war protest movement is still very much there. So after mm-hmm. that legislation had been enforced, so for example, a few days after was the 8th of March, International Women's Day. And as you know, I'm sure you've spent a Women's Day or two in, in Russia. Yes. Like everybody gives flowers to the women in their life. And it's even the one day when some Russian men managed to get into the kitchen. Um, as, as I was explained to me when I ran out the first time I was there on March 8th at 8 in the morning, hoping to find militant demonstrations and instead was given flowers. Right. And I finally got to dinner that night with some Russian friends and they said, oh, well, this is our Mother's Day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, exactly. But so there's a very good Telegram channel called Feminist Anti-War Resistance. And if any of your listeners well, not only those who speak Russian. I mean, they've started to put out some stuff in English as well. So if anybody's on Telegram, I strongly recommend it. They've got 20,000 followers, which even in a big country, that's not nothing. They've only been there for a couple of weeks. And they recommended to their supporters, look, take the flowers, go to the war memorial. Of course, there are war memorials all over Russia. Put them at the war memorial with a notice specifying that these are for the victims of the war in Ukraine, the Ukrainian victims. And I thought that was a really, but that's the sort of thing that we remember from the Soviet period, right? The sort of necessity Mm. to organize in a very covert way. The propaganda, Susie, I think will intensify. We've always had the situation for many years in Russia where there's a, you know, when they do these uh, opinion polls and there's there's a very long tradition, it's much more accurate information than what you tend to get in this country, for example, there's a lot of good opinion polls out there. And they do always show that there is a majority that think that they feel patriotic, they support Putin for that reason, and so on and so on. I mean, I don't know what the precise figures are in the war. I'm I'm inclined to believe the press reports which say that it, you know, if you poll people, that's a majority, but that's a majority sitting at home watching the telly, right? It's not active. And there's an active minority and that active minority will remain. And of course, there was already a high level of protest before this war started. So apart from the economics, perhaps we'll go on and talk about that. I mean, politically and in terms of the social basis, the relationship between the regime and the population, it doesn't hold together over the long term, as we've seen in Belarus, which has a a, a similar political system. (laughs) Well, and Belarus is is really critical because Lukashenko had to crack down enormously in order to, I wouldn't say quell the resistance, but to just for a while, perhaps stymie it. There's no reason to think that it's going to stop. But going back to what you said about those Russians who are watching state-sponsored television and are in denial or just believe what they see and are responding to the calls to be patriotic, People I've talked to in Russia said that there's not the kind of enthusiasm of support that you saw, say, over Crimea or Donbass, and that that's an indication that it's very thin. These are the kinds of things we can't measure from the outside. But it's worth, you know, at least thinking that, especially given how draconian the repressive measures against protesting are, it's very heartening to see that in Russia. Absolutely. I mean, I think, first of all, there's an element where people feel they're being duped. And certainly in families where they have sons in the army, 
there's even a lot of cases where, and in fact, Putin came on and said there are no conscripts serving in Ukraine. And within two days, somebody from the Ministry of Defence came on and said, well, there are, we found that out, but, you know, that was a mistake and we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again and punish whoever's responsible. All news management, of course, I mean, there are quite a large number of conscript soldiers appear to be serving. That's what the military experts say. And many of those who become prisoners of war who've been captured by the Ukrainians are indeed conscript soldiers. So, I mean, we hear rumours, Susie, about whole groups of soldiers effectively refusing to fight. But I must stress, these are rumours. We don't really have any really hard information. There's been some of this stuff reported by Ukrainian sources. But yeah, again, I mean, there's disinformation all round. The Belarusian opposition said that it was their opinion that the reason that Belarusian forces had not yet gone in alongside the Russian forces was that there was a fear at a higher level in the Belarusian army that people would simply desert. So there's something going on, which, I mean, if you think about the First World War, it took three or four years before this sort of stuff started to happen on any scale. Now, we live in a different, this is like a war that, you know, Vietnam was the first TV war. This is sort of, you know, minute by minute war on Twitter. So there's a lot of information floating about. We can't yet know for sure, but I think there are a lot of signs. And just when you you think about the sort of, so there are sort of Russian public figures, sports people and cultural figures and so on Mm. who are based abroad. And when they talk, and obviously they know more than we do, and the way they talk is about the population being duped. So I think that's part of it. But, you know, dictatorships have done this before. They've, They've duped populations. That itself is not a guarantee of anything. But I think the other thing is, Susie, there's very clear signs that there's very little appetite for this in the Russian elite. The statement from Lukoil and the statement from the Rusal group, I've, I've forgotten what it's called now, but the group headed by Oleg Deripaska, which owns all the aluminium, big aluminium plants in Russia. I mean, both of them said they, and they used words that are kind of okay in Russia about, you know, we seek a negotiated solution, blah, 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 we want peace and so on. But I mean, for, you know, big business groups, and it is also partly because they're trying to manage their business relationships with the West. But all the same, even when you factored all that in, I mean, there's not the sort of unity that you had at the time of Crimea when it was very hard to find anybody making public statements of criticism. What about, though, now that we've moved into what some of the oligarchs, at least those, I guess, residing in London, think, but there's the economic consequence of these brutal sanctions, which is not just affecting oligarchs, but everyone, clearly. And, you know, some think that the economy may be tanked altogether or that Russia could collapse. I don't know if that's the case or if it'll go that far and what the consequences of that would be. There's many aspects to kind of consider within that. But the one that I think the calculus in the West is, is that somehow someone in Putin's inner circle will say enough and resign or negotiate or something like that. And I'd like to hear your kind of thoughts on it. Well, again, Susie, you, you've obviously been a radio host for some while and you're very good at putting questions <laughs> about what's going to happen in the future, which is, of course, what we all want we to know. We don't know. We don't I'm know. Getting, I've given a few interviews and I'm getting better at not answering. So I'm, well, I'm not going to say what I think is going to happen in the future because I, I honestly don't know. I think there is that uh, split in the elite. My understanding of the sanctions, and again, so the first thing to say is that as long as they can sell oil, 
And as long as they can sell gas and as long as they can sell the metals, and don't forget that when the market reacts, the price goes up. So then they don't even have to sell so much in order to get the same revenue. I I think the price of nickel has quadrupled or something. I don't, don't, don't quote me on that. I mean, I'm saying it on the radio, but it's gigantic. Yeah, it went right through the ceiling uh, there the other day. And these commodities markets are in absolute turmoil. And we're going to see how all that evolves. Now, I don't know what the, I think there's so much uncertainty. I think this combination of rising prices and the fact that, I mean, actually that, well, the US embargo on imports of Russian oil by itself doesn't mean anything because oil you sell onto the world market. And if you look at the example of Iran, they've managed to keep going. Now, Russia's a lot bigger than Iran and it's got a lot more oil. So the calculation will not be the same. So, I think, you know, forecasts that the Russian economy is just going to go into default may be premature or that it's going to collapse may be premature. That, On the other hand, we have to say that the sanctions that have been imposed constitute a massive turn in policy. So first of all, this is a turn in policy by Germany, the biggest change since 1989, not only refusing permission for the new pipeline, which was a subject of controversy for years with the Ukrainians lobbying for it not to be built, uh, and it's built. I mean, the, the pipe is there under the Baltic mm. Sea, but it will now not, for you know, at least the foreseeable future, not be used. The German decision to supply weapons to Ukraine is also a, a complete turnaround in Germany's relationship with Russia. Now, I won't. I think we shouldn't spend time on the, the absurd farce that we see from our horrible UK government, which not only uh, is doing its best to keep out every single Ukrainian refugee, along with uh, refugees from anywhere else with its uh, racist and horrible immigration policy. But also, it loves putting out press releases saying, like the other day, they sanctioned another, I think it was seven Russian businessmen. And on the same day, the EU sanctioned another 140. But, you know, they do it a little bit at a time and put out a press release each time. And of course, give all their mates who've donated to the Conservative Party here in absolutely mammoth quantities plenty of time to move their money to somewhere a bit safer. So, but I think the serious sanctions, so first of all, from Germany, secondly, the sanctions on the central bank are very serious because the central bank reserves, foreign currency reserves, are one of the really strong points from the state's point of view, but now they can't get their hands on a large part of their own money. That is a serious sanction. And the other thing I think is very serious is the pullout of the oil companies that were working in Russia. That's BP, Shell, Equinor. And when those three had pulled out, I mean, I spoke to a lot of people who are in the sort of environmentalist NGOs that monitor the oil industry, and they're all saying, ah, oh, what about ExxonMobil? And the next day, ExxonMobil pulled out. And so this is, can I just interrupt you? Because this is exactly what I wanted to ask you next, Simon, because you're such an expert on oil and gas exports. And these sanctions are certainly, you know, if we can't tell how effective they'll be, but this is pretty significant. And given that this happens at the same time that we get this devastating climate report, and I know you don't want to speculate, but I want you to speculate anyway, will this, you know, hasten, or maybe I shouldn't say that, but what will be the effect of that? And and, and will it push, say, Germany and others, maybe even the U.S. to go more toward renewables? I, I mean, I think that is one of the big questions. Certainly what's, so just, I think let's just make the political point that when BP writes off its investment in Rosneft, which accounts for a massive 
part of BP's profits, a massive part of its total oil production from that share in Rosneft. BP knows something about what the Western powers are, you know, the attitude they're going to take to Russia over the next few years. And uh, that's something to me is that they're going to kind of cut Russia loose. And I think whatever the outcome of the war in Ukraine, they're happy, as it were, to see Russia as some sort of devastated uh, wasteland. And I think it's important to contrast that with uh, I'm going to come back to the climate point, but I, I just want to contrast that with the attitude of the Western powers that they've taken in the last 20 years of Putin's re-establishment of the strong state, the war in Chechnya, the actions in Syria and so on. I mean, all that time, although there was obviously tension between uh, the USA and some of the European governments and Russia, there was a belief on their part, that they would hold this thing together with Russia somehow, and there'd be a state of tension, but not of of open conflict. Uh, So all the, uh, I think, you know, there's an enormous amount of emphasis put on, oh, this is all because of NATO expansion. In fact, looking from a Ukrainian point of view, or from a Syrian point of view, this is actually about not NATO expansion. Since the East European countries were admitted in 2004, they've actually tried to find a way to work with Russia, for Russia to police the production of the working class in its own territory, to help them police the Middle East through its intervention in Syria, to ensure that the oil keeps flowing, to ensure that the gas keeps flowing and so on. That's been the relationship in fact. And uh, now it's changed, yes. But the action has come primarily through these economic sanctions. So going on to the climate point, uh, yes, it throws it all up in the air. I, I mean, I'm afraid I'm a bit uh, pessimistic as to the way in which gov- clearly government action is needed. Um, and a, a lot of the runaway climate effect has been from the expansion of neoliberalism and the idea that the market solves everything. Uh, a bit of regulation would, you know, a bit of insulating people's homes would cut down the demand for heat. A bit of regulation in the electricity system would cut down the demand for electricity without anybody suffering or going without or whatever. A, a, a bit of investment in urban infrastructure would cut down the uh, overload of uh, urban transportation in, in private cars and so on and so on. All these things would make massive differences. And actually, uh, I think somebody once said, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Um, yes. <laughs> And we saw this, uh, we saw in the pandemic uh, an opportunity where suddenly everybody's sitting at home on Zoom rather than flying around the world every five minutes. We saw a massive fall in uh, the use of uh, fossil fuels globally, as we saw actually on the back of the 2008 financial crisis. Massive, but very temporary. And as soon as uh, the China in particular started coming out of the pandemic, uh, the figures started going up again. Now, I think I think the, sh- the the shock to commodities markets. I think this time will be much more uh, serious. I think the, the people are making the comparison with the nineteen seventies. I think just reading the newspapers in the last couple of days, I think there's going to be a real problem with wheat exports, uh, a large quantity of which, in in terms of the share of the whole world supply, come from Russia and Ukraine, and the sowing season is now. I've got a very good journalist friend in uh, uh, Dnipro-Zerzhinsk, uh, Sergei Guz, 
And he's written an article, I think you'll find it on the Open Democracy Russia site, saying, look, you know, this is the sowing season, man. If you have military conflict, the farmers are not going to sow and the, the wheat production will suffer this year. And of course, the wheat exports from Russia may suffer from sanctions. So uh, there's all these things happening. But on the fossil fuels, I think so clearly the the answer to reducing dependence on Russian oil and gas, which is now what they say they want to do, so clearly the answer is to take those measures I mentioned. That's what all the climate scientists, the environmentalists, everybody says, you know, cut down demand. That doesn't mean, you know, old people going, uh, being cold in the winter. It just means cutting down the throughput through regulation and altering the way that people live, particularly in the rich world, particularly in cities, uh, which could be could be doing with being altered anyway, according to people like us socialists. And those solutions, well, so you've got the EU, and the EU are saying they're going to step up renewables, they're going to step up energy efficiency measures. I've, I've yet to look at, I don't think they've, I mean, what they've done so far is quite vague, but I haven't read through it. And they're going to come there's up with- one little glitch, of course, with the price of nickel going through the roof. That's a key ingredient in the batteries for electric cars. So it's going to, you know, we're facing inflation and other sort of fallouts uh, that were already there. But now, you know, some of some of the efforts that people are pushing are also going to be compromised. Well, it, I mean, without going too far off the subject, I mean, electric cars will not solve climate change. You know, having a decent public transport system and bikes and so on and uh, not people uh, traveling ludicrous distances to do work that probably doesn't need doing anyway that's what will solve climate change in respect of transport but you're quite right of course about the nickel but i so i think the eu that there's at least uh, grounds for a conversation there but i mean if you take what our government the first reaction of our government was to say well we'll have another look at more investment in North Sea oil and fracking and nuclear. Now, if you invest yes. in, a, in an oil field today on the North Sea, it's not you're not going to produce any oil there for at least six to seven years, uh, after which, well, we hope, this war will be a, a, a distant memory. So that's completely just taking the excuse of the war to actually reverse a policy that uh, the government has adopted under great pressure from uh, campaigners to start looking at ways of levelling off and uh, decreasing production on the North Sea. So they've just chucked that out the window for no reason whatever, except that they've seen an excuse, completely cynical. And uh, I'm afraid we'll see more of that. I mean, we've already seen since the uh, talks, the Glasgow Conference of Parties, we've already seen an increase in uh, coal use, uh, both in China and in Europe. And that's been in part because of the concerns about the lack of availability of gas, which has also been, been an element in this kind of growing tension leading up to the war with Russia. So, you know, don't go back to coal, go to renewables or go to energy efficiency. And of course, uh, the right wing in the US is saying, well, this is a reason we have to go, you know, to more nuclear. Yeah. But of course, that's very expensive and dangerous. So I mean, is <laughs> well, it's expensive, and, and we've we've been reminded of the dangers in uh, Zaporizhia last week. Uh, right. Where, again, the suggestion—I mean, we're having suggestions that people could deliberately use uh, nuclear accidents or, or or whatever as a as a 
as a weapon of war. Suggestions again, also I've read stuff in the press this week about biological wars. So obviously, the, the Russians uh, said, "Oh, that's what Ukraine is cooking up," and Zelensky came back and said, "Well, you know, if you know, want to know what the Russians are going to do, look at what they're accusing us of." And, and that is that. And animated. the mere fact it's being talked about for the first time in well, it's not the well, it happened in Syria, right? So it's not the first time, but, it, but it's what it's being I should talked just... about again is is frightening. Yeah, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean that's exactly what the right is animated about here now, you know, and and even it's become part of the trucker convoy, which you probably I don't know if you know about it or not, but here in the United States on their way to Washington, and they were against the mask mandate, and when that was you know brought down, well then they said they're against you know, these biochemical labs in Ukraine under Fauci's direction to create some poisonous vaccine. It's really crazy. But on the other hand, it's being taken up. And it just seems to me that this is a very good example of of what, you know, Putin's meddling in social media can provoke if that's if that is the case. But um, but yeah, so we only have about a half a minute left, and I guess that takes us back to, let me just get your final assessment, because this has been a terrific conversation. Do you think at this point there's any way that we can say that Russia is losing this war? Or, um, I mean, what do you think? Is there is there some assessment you can make at this point 17 days in? No, I think it's it, it's impossible to say. Obviously, uh, we've seen in the last couple of days that uh, the Russian forces are moving towards Kiev, which is the capital city. Uh, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, what I would say is not in doubt is that there are many things that uh, the listeners of your program and all of us in the labour movement and the different social movements can do, both to support people in Ukraine. We've had an absolute – I mean, we haven't talked about the, the refugees, really, no. Susie, and there's been a massive – effort by you know a huge array of organizations in Europe to go to Poland. There's been a support for the African students who've been treated in an absolutely racist manner on the Polish border, uh, support for them, for all Ukrainians, for everybody fleeing war, which we've got an unprecedented number of refugees. But there's ways also of supporting people inside Ukraine. There's ways of supporting those anti-war protesters in Russia, which are a vital part of this picture. And I suppose that's what, because it is uncertain, that's where we've got to end. And Simon, just to finally finish it, uh, should I direct people to peoplenature.org for more information about what they can do? Where, what else would you recommend? Yeah, for sure. Go there. There's, please do. That's my blog. And I try always to include a lot of links to stuff that I think is worth reading. I think Open Democracy Russia has just been excellent in terms of getting authors from uh, Russia and Ukraine. They, they don't really have any uh, Brits or Americans writing for them at all. They get uh, journalists from the region, and uh, that's all in English. It's very good to follow. There's commons.com.ua, which is the uh, website of the journal Commons in uh, Ukrainian, and they try to translate their material where they can into English. There's enough there to, to get you started. Very well worth uh, reading that. And of course, I mean, you know, everybody's covering this at the moment, uh, Susie. So that those are just three that have come to my mind uh, now. And and yeah, let's work to make sure that we do understand the thing uh, and not rely on the mainstream media, which can uh, have such a negative uh, effect. 
Simon Pirani, thank you so much for all of that. And I will repeat all of those uh, uh, websites that you mentioned. They're all very good. The first one, of course, is Simon's own blog, and that's peoplenature.org. And it's, as I said, a go-to place because it will also link to other places and tell you where you can go. So uh, that should be where you start, Open Democracy, Russia, and the commons.com UA, I think it is, that you mentioned, also a superb site. I want to thank you for joining us and, you know, you know, giving us a, the bigger picture. Simon Pirani is an honorary professor at the University of Durham, and he's the author of Burning Up, A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption, and also Change in Putin's uh, Russia and many others. But mainly right now, Simon is, you know, I would say maybe not 24-7, but close to it on this crisis and bringing us information at peoplenature.org. Thanks for joining us today, Simon Ferrani. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much.